Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 79 of the show. It is just a monster episode for you this week. Uh, We did not have an episode last week, as you probably noticed. So we have lots to get into. We have two PGA Tour tournaments to recap, along with a preview of this weekend's major championship. The NHL Stanley Cup Final has arrived So we'll recap how each of the conference finals played out and uh, have an in-depth preview of the Stanley Cup final. Over in the NBA, uh, the NBA finals uh, are pretty much coming to an end here uh, this this week, this weekend. So uh, we'll get you caught up on how all that has gone down. Of course, we'll do a standings update in Major League Baseball. We've had a little bit of movement since we haven't uh, discussed that in a couple weeks. And then just a loaded Around the Island segment to get into with lots of news and info from all over the place. But we're going to start off in the PGA Tour. A couple weekends ago, it was the Memorial Tournament presented by Workday. That was at the Muirfield Village Golf Club in Dublin, Ohio. It was a par 72. Distance was 7,533 yards. Now, in the last episode, we previewed this tournament. And we talked about how this is one of the more historic courses on tour. Uh, it was designed by Jack Nicholas, known as the course that Jack built. It's been on the PGA Tour schedule every year since 1976. All right, We've seen some major renovations take place at this course over the past couple years. A lot of irrigation work uh, was done. Bunkers were rebuilt. Uh, the greens were reconstructed. They resurfaced the tee boxes, and they also added some length to this course. Uh, Pretty quick greens that we saw uh, during this tournament. Um, So you knew proximity to the hole was going to be key. And um, it definitely played like a challenging course. We had an elite field for this one, all right? Seven of the top ten players were out there, including Rom, Cantlay, Cameron Smith, uh, Morikawa, Hovland, McElroy, and Spieth, all right? So those guys teed it up out there. Um. It was a good tournament. The course played very tough for a par 72. Uh, those greens were fast. Weather wasn't a factor, but it just played. It was a very, um, uh, I guess, high-scoring tournament. Not not low in terms of what you would think a normal winning score would be, but um, we had an interesting development happen in round one of this tournament. Hideki Matsuyama was actually disqualified from this tournament after nine holes in round one for using a non-conforming three-wood. So the club violation got him booted from the tournament after nine holes. Now, Matsuyama was already three over par, so um, it didn't appear that he was going to be in contention um, for the weekend, but uh, nonetheless, we still had a disqualification. Those don't happen very often, especially for club violations, but uh, such was the case 
uh, at the Memorial Tournament. Now, in the end, uh, your winner was Billy Horschel with a score of 13 under par. Now, that's kind of an average winning score, I'd say. Uh, but second place was Aaron Wise at nine under par, right? So Billy Horschel won this thing by four shots, became the first golfer since Ernie Els in 2004 to win the Memorial Tournament by at least four shots, all right? It was his seventh career victory on the PGA Tour. And what really got this thing going, uh, he shot two under 70 in round one, four under 68 in round two, but he really sealed the deal with a seven under 65 in round three. All right, that's when he just jumped up and took a stranglehold lead. Uh, that 65 was actually the lowest round by anybody over that weekend. All right, so that was a phenomenal round of golf by Horschel. Followed it up with an even par 72 on Sunday to finish at that 13 under. Uh, Aaron Wise, I told you, was second at nine under. Wasn't real flashy. Shot uh, two under, three under, three under, and one under. So Nothing really impressive, just good, consistent golf. Two-way tie for third, Joaquin Neiman and Patrick Cantlay, who was the defending champion of this thing. They both finished tied for third at seven under par. We had uh, five guys tied for fifth at six under par, and that was Max Homa, who just continues to be uh, finished near the top of the leaderboard. Will Zalatoris, always count him in. Denny McCarthy, Sahith Thigala and Daniel Berger. All right. Uh, interesting about Thigala, he actually shot three over 75 in his second round, but uh, he managed to bring it back down. Uh, had he shot even par in that round, he would have uh, that would have put him at nine under, which would have given uh, given him a T two finish. But uh, everybody else in that that group that I just mentioned all played pretty. Pretty good golf over the weekend. Um, just some repeat names that we've seen. Um, you know, John Rahm finished T10 at four under. All right, so there were some big names uh, at the top of this leaderboard or close to it. Uh, but really, after the third round, it was pretty, or even during the third round, when Horschel, when, when he was going low, it was pretty apparent that uh, this was his tournament to lose. And uh, that was the case on Sunday. All he had to do was shoot even par, and he still won by four shots. So, uh, But like I said, all in all, it was a good tournament. Had a great field for that thing, um, which was which was fun to watch. Uh, that, that course always plays tough. Uh, but this past weekend's tournament, uh, we did not have a preview of this tournament uh, because we didn't have an episode last week. But it was the RBC Canadian Open, and that was at the St. George's Golf and Country Club in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. It was a par 70, distance 7,014 yards, all right? So not as long as, as what we've been seeing on tour, uh, but the par 70, uh, you th- you'd think that uh, you'd see some, some higher scores here with the par 70, um, but that just simply wasn't the case. Uh, interesting thing happened in round two, uh, Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas were playing in a group together. Uh, they both hit their tee shots. I believe Justin Thomas hit first. Rory hit second. Uh, their balls, uh, Thomas ended up in the middle of the fairway. Rory hit his, and his ball rolled up right up next to Justin Thomas's. Actually hit Justin Thomas's ball and moved both of them after contact, so they had to get a ruling. 
but it's just what are the chances of that actually happening? Two balls landing in the exact same spot of the same fairway. Uh, just something you don't see. So that was interesting. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, kind of the weird, weird thing that happened during the tournament. But the, the golf was super competitive. And that par 70 didn't scare anybody uh, because the scores that we saw were just preposterous. Um, Rory McIlroy won this tournament with a score of 19 under par. All right. Now that's you know, we've seen a lot of scores around that, but on a par 70 course, that is just uh, unheard of. Um, this was Rory McIlroy's 21st career PGA Tour victory, all right? And he also, he had won this tournament last year. So he, uh, this was a back-to-back victory for Rory McIlroy. Now, he did so. Uh, he came out, shot four under 66, two under 68, five under 65, and then finished up on Sunday with a phenomenal eight under 62 uh, to capture this thing. Second place was Tony Finau, all right? He was at 17 under par. He played really good. Uh, It's nice to see Finau back up there. He, too, with Rory, shot a four under 66 in round one, shot one over in round two, 71 and then he came out on uh Saturday's third round and shot a uh an 8 under 62 which for him uh tied his career low round all right so that tied his best round ever in his career 62 and then shot 6 under 64 on Sunday all right so really good golf by Finau uh third place was Justin Thomas at 15 under par he looked like he was going to be in contention uh, on Sunday and then had a couple of late bogeys uh, that took him out. I think he bogeyed 17 and 18, if I'm not mistaken. There was a two-way tie for fourth place at 14 under par. That was Justin Rose and Sam Burns. Now, Justin Rose uh, really didn't play that impressive until Sunday. Uh, he shot one under, even par, three under. So he was only at four under heading into Sunday's final round. And then he shot a 10 under round of 60, which was the lowest round of the weekend. Uh, That uh, was his career low round. And Justin Rose has been playing a lot of golf. Uh, He has been on tour for a long time. He's played at very high levels, uh, has competed in majors. And this dude shot his career low round on Sunday. All right, for a round of 60, which gave him a 14 under. All right, Corey Connors was your first Canadian on the board. He shot 12 under, which was good for sixth place. He shot an eight under 62 on Sunday as well. Um, And then three guys at 10 under par, Keith Mitchell, Chris Kirk, and Wyndham Clark. Wyndham Clark was actually uh, your uh, 18 and 36 hole leader. Clark came out, shot a 7-under 63, which led, and then he shot even par on uh, Friday, which kept him at 7-under, which was still in the lead at the time, Uh, and then Rory went to work on Saturday and Sunday. So uh, again, this leaderboard, you see some names that you're used to seeing, Um, Sam Burns being one of those. The kid just continues to play really good golf. You're not surprised to see McElroy or Thomas up there. It's good to see Finau back up there. But all in all, this was a good tournament. Uh, this 
this thing did come down to the 18th hole, uh, really, uh, 17 and 18, uh, because McElroy was playing in a group uh, with Justin Thomas and Tony Finau, I believe. So um, this thing came down to the 18th hole, and uh, McElroy ended up birdieing that to seal the deal. But um, yeah, great tournament. Rory played really well. His 21st victory on Jets, very impressive. Um, but that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the U.S. Open. All right, it is held at the Country Club at Brookline in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. This, too, is a par 70. Distance is 7,264 yards. Okay, this is the fourth U.S. Open to be played here at Brookline, and it's the first one since 1988. It's also hosted a Ryder Cup, which was probably more uh, what it's more well-known for. Uh, the course is a lot different than it was back then. Uh, there's been a new sequencing of holes and a par 3 11th hole that has not been used in a major since 1913. So they've done some, some uh, renovations there to that. Uh, the field itself, uh, it's a major championship, right? So it's going to be the best of the best. Um, Tiger Woods, though, uh, you know, announced that he's not going to be playing. He, of course, he's played in the Masters and the PGA Championship earlier this year. All right, he's played in the first two majors. Uh, it was against his, probably his better judgment uh, because his leg was obviously in severe discomfort. Uh, he didn't play particularly well in either tournament. Actually had to withdraw from the PGA Championship after the third round, so... Uh, no surprise to see Tiger not participating this week, even after he had originally committed a while back. But um, some storylines heading into this thing. Of course, I love the U.S. Open. Uh, it's always on Father's Day weekend, all right? And um, so it's pretty special to watch a major championship. This, of course, is the third major championship of the year behind the Masters and the PGA Championship. So, um, you know, we got the top players in the world out there and very competitive golf. The storylines heading into this thing, uh, Scotty Scheffler, world number one, he's looking to become just the sixth golfer in history to win both the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same season. Justin Thomas, he just won the PGA Championship a few weeks ago. He's looking to win back-to-back -back majors. Um, John Rahm is your defending champion here at the U.S. Open. And he's looking to become only the third golfer in the last 50 years to win back-to-back -back U.S. Opens. So there's a lot riding on it for him. And then this past week's winner, Rory McIlroy, believe it or not, he has not won a major championship since 2014. All right, so uh, he's won several of them, uh, but he has not won a major in eight years, uh, which is just uh, pretty insane considering the fact that uh, he still continues to win at a pretty good clip uh, to the tune of 21 career victories so far. Uh, but like I said, no majors since 2014. So um, I will definitely be tuned in. Obviously, it's a major championship, um, one of the four best tournaments of the entire year. And it's on Father's Day weekend, which makes it even more special. So uh, uh, one Father's Day gift to myself will be sitting there most of the weekend, probably poolside, uh, watching the U.S. Open. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. 
Uh, it's going to be a great competitive tournament. Uh, the par 70 should keep the scores reasonable, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it is going to be a fantastic tournament, and I will be sure to tune into that uh, all weekend long. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and uh, do a playoff update here in the NHL. We have officially reached the Stanley Cup Final, uh, but uh, before we do our in-depth preview on that matchup, we got to recap how we got there, which was the Conference Finals matchup. So we'll go through those here. Starting off in the Eastern Conference, it was the Tampa Bay Lightning versus the New York Rangers. All right, I had originally picked the Tampa Bay Lightning to win the series in six games. All right, uh, last episode, we had recapped the first game of this series, uh, which was an absolute beatdown by the Rangers at home. Uh, 6-2 to two win there. Uh, interestingly enough, though, after that game, uh, well, in game one, New York Rangers goalie Igor Shosturkin, he had 37 saves on 39 shots for a 949 save percentage. And that just happened to be his exact stat line for games six and seven against the Carolina Hurricanes uh, in the previous series, meaning that Igor Shosturkin had three consecutive games with the exact same stat line, 37 saves on 39 shots. Uh, That is really insane, Uh, pretty unbelievable, quite frankly. But um, we go to game two in this series. The Rangers were up 1-0. Uh, Tampa Bay came into Game 2 having won nine straight Game 2s and 18 straight playoff games after a loss, all right? So they had a couple different streaks uh, going on here in Game 2. They actually came out and scored the first goal, but then the Rangers got a couple before the period ended and took a 2-1 lead into the third. In the third period, uh, Rangers went up 3-1, and then uh, the Lightning got a very late goal. Uh, by Nick Paul to make it 3-2, to two, but New York held on to win that game. So the Rangers won both of the first two games of this series, uh, so that snapped uh, the Lightning's nine-game winning streak in Game 2s, and it also snapped the 18 straight playoff wins after losing a game. All right, This was the first time that Tampa Bay had lost consecutive playoff games since 2019 when they did that, did that against the Columbus Blue Jackets. And they had also gone uh, 10 straight playoff series for a total of 56 games without losing back-to-back games. So a lot of streaks broken there. Game three shifted back to Tampa. Uh, you knew this was going to be a good one. The Rangers actually took a 2-1 to lead into the third period, uh, but Tampa came out playing in the third period. Steven Stamkos uh, scored about a minute and a half into the third to tie it. And then Andre Palat in the last minute with about 45 seconds left, uh, Andre Palat uh, beat Igor Shosturkin on a little snapshot to give the Lightning a 3-2 to two, uh, victory in Game 3 and bring the series two games to one. All right, Game 4 was also in Tampa, and this one was all Tampa. Uh, this thing, uh, it was 3 three nothing. Uh, Tampa Bay in the third period before the Rangers, uh, Artemi Panarin finally scored with about three minutes left. And then Andre Pallott added an empty netter. So Tampa Bay won game four, four to one, which meant that the home team in this series had won all four games. Uh, It was the first time uh, since the Eastern Conference Finals in 1991 that a home team had won all four of the first games, 
uh, first four games of the conference finals. So we move along to game five back in uh, New York, uh, Madison Square Garden. New York had been a great home team. Uh, they actually came out and scored the first goal this game in the second period, about halfway through. Uh, Mikhail Sergachev answered that one. The teams um, came out in the third period. Uh, not a whole lot of scoring in this one until very, very late. All right. Andre Pallott, I keep mentioning his name. He was a big factor in this series. He ended up scoring the go-ahead goal uh, with about a minute and 50 seconds left. So uh, in game three, he scored with you know 42 seconds left to give the Lightning uh, the lead and the victory. And in this game, he scored with a minute 50 left to give the Lightning a 2-1 to lead. And then uh, Lightning would add an empty netter. All right, so they won game uh, game five, three to one. So then they go back home. Lightning are very tough to beat uh, at home. Steven Stamkos got the, the Lightning on the board early in this one. Rangers answered it. And then Steven Stamkos again, a uh, little more than halfway through the third period, gave the Lightning a two to one lead, which ended up being the uh, final nail in the coffin to give the series uh, 4-2 series win for the Lightning, meaning they won in six games, which means I actually correctly predicted uh, Tampa Bay winning the series in six games to a T. All right, so the Tampa Bay Lightning are your Eastern Conference champions. Now, over in the Western Conference, it was the Colorado Avalanche versus the Edmonton Oilers. All right, I had originally picked the Colorado Avalanche to win the series in seven games. Uh, we had two of the higher scoring teams in this one. I talked about that uh, just insane game one. All right. On last episode, we had recapped game one. That was an eight to six win for the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, game two was in Colorado. Uh, this thing was all abs. Uh, they got three goals in the second period uh, on, you know, Three consecutive shots, actually. So check this out. Uh, after the 14-goal outburst we had in Game 1, all right? Game 2, obviously, I just mentioned, was a little more tame. We had no scoring in the first. About four minutes into the second period is when the avalanche erupted for those three goals. It took two minutes and four seconds for them to score three goals, and it happened on three consecutive shots, all right? That lead stayed for the rest of the game. Uh, Avalanche added a power play goal with just under five minutes left in the game to grab a 4 nothing win and a 2 nothing series victory. Uh, Pavel Francois had 24 saves for the Avs in the shutout. So uh, Avalanche took the series 2 uh, nothing lead to Edmonton. Game three was in Edmonton. Uh, Connor McDavid actually scored 38 seconds into this game to get the crowd in it. Uh, was a pretty phenomenal. I mean, the the kid is so fast and just so damn good. Um, the Avs, Valerie Nachushkin, he actually scored with uh, just under four minutes left in the first to tie it, and then he scored again about four and a half minutes into the second. So in about an eight-minute span, Nachushkin had two goals, gave the Avs a two-to-one lead. Edmonton tied it, and then uh, Avalanche just came rolling on through there in the third period. Got a couple of uh couple of goals in the second half of that third period to take a four to two victory there in game three and put them up three games to nothing. Commanding lead 
it was pretty apparent that the Oilers were not going to win this series uh, in that after they lost that game three. Uh, so you come out in game four, and uh, this one was uh, this one was another barn burner. Uh, the Avalanche, Kale McCarr, all right. Just a phenomenal player. Probably was the best player in this series outside of Connor McDavid. Uh, he scored three and a half minutes into the first period. Uh, that lead held into the second. And then in that second period, uh, Edmonton actually scored three goals in the second period. All right. To, to go up three to one going into the third. And then uh, Colorado tied at 31 seconds into that third period. All right. So a uh, quick answer by the Avs. Uh, Edmonton, Zach Hyman scored. That was his uh, second goal of the game to give the Oilers a 4-2 lead. And then uh, here came the Avalanche. Uh, They scored uh, three goals, actually four goals, four unanswered. That was three. Three unanswered goals right after that. All right. Uh, Landis Cog, Nathan McKinnon, and Miko Rantanen uh, to give the Avalanche a 5-4 lead. And then um, with about three and a half minutes left, Zach Cassian for the Oilers tied the game, sent it to overtime. All right, so we're going into overtime 5-5. Edmonton needs a win to continue their season. And Colorado's Arturi Lekkinen ended up sealing the deal on a nice wrist shot about a minute and 19 seconds into overtime. So that gave the Avalanche a 6-5 victory in that game. And a 4 nothing series victory sweep over the Edmonton Oilers. All right, so that brings us to the Stanley Cup Final. It is the Western Conference champion Colorado Avalanche against the Eastern Conference champion Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, we'll preview each of these teams real quick. Uh, the Colorado Avalanche, your Western Conference champion. How did they get to the Stanley Cup Final? Well, they beat the Nashville Predators in four games in a sweep. They then beat the St. Louis Blues in six games and then just beat the Edmonton Oilers last round in a four-game sweep as well, meaning that Colorado had two sweeps out of their three series, which is absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, they only had two losses, all right, so far in the playoffs. Uh, their two losses entering the Stanley Cup Finals are tied for the fewest losses ever in route to uh, that final playoff series, all right? The most recent team to do that was the 2012 Los Angeles Kings, who went on to win that Stanley Cup. Uh, Colorado also became the first team to win every road playoff game heading into the Stanley Cup Finals since those 2012 LA Kings. And the Avalanche this year are the first team since the 2003 Anaheim Ducks uh, to have two sweeps in the same postseason. This is their first Stanley Cup final appearance since 2001. So the Avalanche come into this thing with a very impressive resume. And the flip side, your Eastern Conference champion, Tampa Bay Lightning, how'd they get here? Well, they beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the opening round in seven games. They were down three games to two and won two straight uh, to win in seven. Uh, They then beat the... President Trophy-winning Florida Panthers in the second round in a four-game sweep. That was probably the most impressive series victory uh, in these entire playoffs, uh, just due to the fact that Florida was the best team in the regular season in the entire league. 
Tampa beat them in four games. The Lightning then went on to beat the New York Rangers in six games, all right? Uh, this is their third consecutive Stanley Cup Finals appearance, all right? And the Lightning are the reigning back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. So they have won the last two Stanley Cups. They are looking to become the first team since the 1981 to 1983 New York Islanders to three-peat a Stanley Cup championship. So some interesting facts about this Stanley Cup Finals, all right? This is the first Stanley Cup Final in NHL history to feature two teams whose names do not end in the letter S, all right? That's a weird stat, but if you think about it, Tampa Bay Lightning, Colorado Avalanche, all right? Most teams in all four major pro sports have a team name that ends in the letter S, but these two teams do not. It's the first time in the NHL history that it's happened, and it's only the second time in the history of the four major pro sports in the U.S. that this has been the case. Uh, From 1915 to 1993, so we're talking uh, almost 80 years uh, of of NHL action, uh, American teams only won 27 Stanley Cups in that time frame from 1915 to 1993. Well, This year is going to be the 28th year in a row that an American team has won the Stanley Cup. It has been a hot minute since we've seen a Canadian team win the Stanley Cup. And uh, we were pretty close to getting uh, a Canadian team in the conference finals, I guess, uh, or the Stanley Cup finals. Edmonton uh, made it to the conference finals, but uh, we'll have to wait another year for that. Uh, This is also the first Stanley Cup finals since 1979 that a teammate of legendary forward Yarmir Yager will not be participating in the Stanley Cup final. Now, that I thought that was just uh, complete insanity. Um, that just tells you how long Yarmir Yager played in the league and how many teams he played on. If he had a teammate every year in the Stanley Cup finals from 1979 all the way to 2021. And if you Google it, it'll have the list of each of the players from every year that he was teammates with at one point. So uh, that is a legitimate stat, uh, as crazy as it is. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning forward Corey Perry. He is the second player in NHL history to reach three consecutive Stanley Cup finals with three different franchises. He did it in 2020 with the Dallas Stars, who lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning. He did it last year in 2021 with the Montreal Canadiens, who lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning. And then he made it this year with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, The only other player in NHL history to do that is Marion Hossa. He did it in 2008, 2009, and 2010. All right, so um, this trend here is continuing again this year, and that is the fact that no team has ever won the Stanley Cup with a player on their roster with a salary of $10 million or more per season. Now, the only such player who's made the Stanley Cup Finals uh, was last year, and that was Montreal's Carey Price. Uh, he did that. Of course, they lost, which that is incredible. Um, you look at these two rosters, and you see just how much talent is on both teams, but none of them are making more than $10 million on average annual value. Uh, there's They're close. There's some that are close, but... Um, I just thought that was pretty wild. You think of the firepower that we have. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, But speaking of money, 
The average ticket price for Game 1 tickets to this series was $1,061 per ticket, which is the highest average sale price for a Stanley Cup final ticket since the 2010 season. So uh, this is going to be a barn burner of a series, and uh, the ticket costs are certainly following that theory. Now, the preview of this series, uh, Tampa Bay is actually 0-3 against Colorado in their last three games against them. Now, Andre Vasilevsky, the Lightning goalie, uh, best goalie in the world, he has not beaten the Colorado Avalanche since 2018 and has a career 341 goals against average and an 877 save percentage against the Avalanche in his career. Neither of those stats are great. They're both ugly, and uh, he has not beaten them in four years. So... Uh, my outlook on this series, both of these teams have elite talent on offense. All right, Colorado has Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rantanen, and um, you know Nazem Kadri's had a hell of a playoffs. I'm not sure if he's going to play. He got hurt uh, in that conference final against Edmonton. And then on the Tampa Bay side, you have Nikita Kucherov, who is certainly a top uh, five to six player in the league. And Braden Point, who actually missed the conference finals due to the injury that he sustained um, in that uh, second round. But he returned to practice this week, so it looks like they might get Braden Point back. But you got those two guys on offense for the Lightning. And then Andre Palat was obviously a huge factor in the conference finals. And then both of these teams have elite defensemen. Uh, for Colorado, it's Kale McCarr, probably the best young defenseman in the game. Uh, Kid is fantastic. He was the best player in the Western Conference Finals, uh, and that includes uh, playing against Connor McDavid. Uh, Kale McCarr is is certainly a top-flight defenseman, and so too is Victor Hedman on the uh, Tampa Bay side. All right, uh, but the difference in this series is in net. All right, Andre Vasilevsky for Tampa is the best goalie on the planet. All right, and it's not up for discussion. Uh, on if he's better than Pavel Francos or Francos because he is definitely better than Francos because Francos is the backup. Um, I know Vasilevsky's stats aren't great, all right, but I'm I'm not counting on him being worse than Francos, all right. So this series, um, it's going to be a slugfest, man. Um, Colorado can score in bunches, but so too can Tampa Bay. And uh, I think the offenses are very similar. I think the defenses are relatively similar. But I think Tampa Bay has the edge in net. I think Tampa Bay is going to three-peat this thing. I know Colorado is an absolute wagon right now. And they are the hottest team uh, in the playoffs. They, you know, But the problem is also from the time that their game ended uh, against the... Uh, Edmonton Oilers, Colorado last played on Monday, June 6th, all right? This Stanley Cup Finals uh, is starting on Wednesday, June 15th, so that's a week and a half off. Uh, I, I think Tampa Bay is going to capitalize on on Colorado's uh, rustiness, so to speak, uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, Colorado may, may come out and win the first two games. Who knows? But I think the Tampa Bay Lightning are going to win this series in seven games. Um, I don't like to pick against Colorado from what I've seen, but um, I think both of these teams are similar on offense, similar on defense. There's going to be uh, scoring a plenty. 
in this series, but at the end of the day, Andre Vasilevsky is a much better goalie than Pavel Francouz, and so that is my difference in this series, and uh, I believe the Lightning are going to three-peat and be the first team to do that since the 1980s, but we'll have to see on next episode. We'll check in and with how it's going. But we'll move over to the NBA and the NBA Finals and get you caught up to speed there. Uh, Last episode, we did an in-depth preview of these NBA Finals, which is between the Western Conference champion Golden State Warriors and the Eastern Conference champion Boston Celtics. All right, this was Golden State's sixth NBA Finals appearance in the last eight seasons, whereas Boston was making their first NBA Finals appearance in the last 12 years. Uh, despite having played in four of the past six Eastern Conference Finals. All right, these were the two best teams in the NBA's regular season in terms of defensive efficiency. They literally ranked one and two. Boston was one, Golden State was two. We knew this was going to be uh, a defensive series, or at least one on the defensive side of the basketball. Uh, Boston came into this thing, ESPN's Basketball Power Index, said that Boston was going to win this thing. Uh, I predicted that Golden State would win in seven games. We are currently, as I record this, uh, five games into this series, and the Golden State Warriors have a 3-2 to two series lead. So how did we get there? Uh, game one. Uh, this did not follow that defensive efficiency that we talked about in our preview episode. Um, the teams just went back and forth, traded blows in the first half, Steph Curry went absolutely bonkers in the first quarter. Uh, he made six three-pointers in that first quarter, which was an NBA Finals record for threes in a quarter. Uh, this was his fifth playoffs, making 73 pointers in a single postseason. And that three-point barrage just continued in the second half. Golden State took a 12-point lead into the fourth quarter. All right, 12-point lead into the fourth quarter. But Boston came storming back like gangbusters in the fourth, uh, they outscored Golden State 40-16 to in that fourth, uh, fourth quarter, including a 17-0 run at one point. Kind of late in the fourth. It was a 17-0 run. Uh, Boston ended up winning the game 120-108. to uh, Boston outscored Golden State by 24 points in that fourth quarter, which tied for the largest point differential in any quarter in NBA Finals history. And there were also a combined 40 three-pointers made in that game between both teams, which was the most three-pointers made in a game in NBA Finals history. All right, so so much for that defensive efficiency that we talked about last uh, episode. Uh, but the Boston Celtics, with that win, remember they were down by 12 entering the fourth quarter. They became the first team in NBA history to win a Finals game by double digits after trailing by double digits entering the fourth quarter. So very impressive stuff there from Boston in game one, which was, it was in San Francisco, all right? Golden State had home court advantage in here. Game two, all right, um, Golden State came out. They had a two-point lead at halftime, but then they outscored Boston by uh, 21 points in that third quarter. Didn't let up in the fourth like they did in game one. Uh, Golden State won game two, 107 to 88. They held the Celtics to under 90 points. All right. Game three was back in Boston. All right. This one was pretty much uh, all Celtics. All right. Uh, 
Boston's trio of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart, they all had over 20 points. They combined for 77 points, all right, uh, to give the Celtics a 116 to 100 victory in game three in the two to one series lead. All right, in that game three, Boston collected 15 offensive rebounds, all right, and had a 22 to 11 advantage in second chance points. All right, that was a huge, huge reason why they won that game. And through three games in this series, uh, Golden State was plus 43 point differential in the third quarter, and Boston was plus 40 point differential in the fourth quarter. So while Golden State was owning the third quarter in the series through three games, Boston was owning the fourth, and the fourth happens to be the most important quarter uh, because that is the last quarter, all right? So um, Boston took a 2-1 series lead into game four, and then they ran into the buzzsaw that is Steph Curry. Uh, Steph Curry just went absolutely uh, bananas in this thing. He exploded for 43 points, all right? I think he had 10 rebounds to go with it. Uh, with that performance, uh, well, Golden State won the game, 107 to 97. So uh, none of these games were particularly close in the final score. Um, you know, we had a 12-point win, a 19-point win, 16 points, and 10 points. This was, in fact, the closest score out of the first four games. Uh, but Golden State won 107 to 97. Uh, with that 43 points, Steph Curry became the second oldest player with 40 points and 10 rebounds in an NBA Finals game, uh, NBA Finals history. The only other person to do that was LeBron James, all right? Now, Steph Curry's 43 points meant that he almost outscored Boston's two best players by himself because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown for the Celtics, they combined for only 44 points in game four. Steph Curry had 43 by himself. So he um, he almost single-handedly uh, outscored Boston's two best players. So that evened the series at two games apiece. Game five was back in San Francisco, and it was another 10-point uh, victory. Uh, basically, the Boston Celtics came out in game five, and they couldn't hit their plate with their fork. All right, They were 0 for 12 from three-point range, uh, which was the most missed three-pointers to start an NBA Finals game over the last 25 years, all right? The three-point curse continued for the Celtics, or, or continued, period, uh, except on the Golden State side as well, because Steph Curry, in this game, he failed to make a three-pointer for the first time in 132 playoff games, all right? He also had a streak going of 233 consecutive games between the regular season and the playoffs while making a three-pointer. All right, so Steph Curry, um, Golden State ended up winning this game 104 to 94. All right, so Golden State won by 10 to get uh, their second victory in a row. Um, but the story of this thing was Andrew Wiggins. He had 26 points and 13 rebounds. All right, uh, Steph Curry, he did still score 16 points, and that's without hitting a three-pointer. He had eight assists to go along with that, but Andrew Wiggins was the key player there for Golden State. Klay Thompson, this was a Klay Thompson game. He had 21 points all right, for the Warriors in game five there. So Golden State won by 10. 
So all five of these games, that's currently where we sit now. Golden State has a 3-2 to two series lead. Uh, Steph Curry is averaging 30 points a game, uh, almost 31 points a game in this series. Jason Tatum's sitting at 23, a little over 23 points a game. All right, so all five of these games have been double-digit victories. Uh, two games at 10-point differentials, uh, one at 12, uh, one at 16, and one at uh, 19-point differential. So, again, none of them particularly close, which is kind of surprising. Um, we've had three of the five games have uh, a team has failed to score 100 points. All right, so there's kind of your defensive efficiency kicking in a little bit, uh, minus that first game. Uh, after that first game, three out of the last four games have resulted in one team failing to score 100 points. And in that other game, uh, Golden State sat right at 100 points. So you can see uh, the defense that we talked about coming uh, to fruition here. Game six is is in Boston. All right. By the time you listen to this episode, it may have already been played. And Golden State, if they win, they could win the, the NBA championship, Larry O'Brien trophy. So uh, next week, we will have a game six and potentially a game seven to recap. Uh, I did pick Golden State to win in seven. Uh, they could very well win in six, but uh, I expect Boston to come out on their home floor in game six and uh, give it their best shot. Uh, I think a big game from Jason Tatum is in store. And uh, we'll have to see how that turns out on next week's episode. But we could very well be crowning uh, an NBA champion uh, on Thursday's Game 6. But either way, by next week's episode, uh, we should have or we will have uh, an NBA champion to talk about. So we will get you caught up on that next episode. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball and do a standings update here in the MLB it's been a couple of weeks since our last episode, so the standings certainly do look different now than they did back then. Uh, most teams have played between 62 and 64 games, so we're still a couple weeks away from uh, approaching the halfway point of the season. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, some interesting news. Uh, this is the first season in Major League Baseball history that both the New York Yankees and the New York Mets are the first two teams to reach the 40-win mark of the season, all right? So uh, both New York teams were the first two to reach 40 wins. Uh, first time that that's ever happened. We'll start off the standings update in the National League East, all right? This had been the biggest division lead in baseball for the previous several episodes, but such is not the case anymore. The New York Mets are still atop that division at 41-22, and 22. Uh, Eduardo Escobar hit for the cycle this past week, giving their Mets, uh, giving the Mets the 11th cycle in their team history and the first since 2012. Uh, but the Atlanta Braves, they are the hottest team in all of baseball. They have won 13 games in a row as it sits right now. They're 36 and 27. They're still five games back of the Mets. That just tells you. Uh, how bad the Braves' season has been to this point, that they've won 13 games in a row, they're second in their division, and they're still five games back. That also tells you how impressive the Mets have been this season, all right? But the Braves did get some bad news the other day. Ozzie Albies, their second baseman, fouled a ball off of his foot 
and fractured it. So he is out for an extended period of time. All right, the Philadelphia Phillies are third in the NL East at 31 and 31. They're nine and a half games back of the Mets. Now, outfielder Nick Castellanos, all right, he purchased the house of former Philadelphia 76ers forward Ben Simmons, all right, when he got traded to Brooklyn, he sold his house, uh, of course, in Philly. Nick Castellanos purchased it on May 13th, so about a month ago, and since purchasing Ben Simmons' house, he's hit just 199, so he's hitting under 200 since he purchased Ben Simmons' house. Uh, so the curse of Ben Simmons lives on. It's alive and well. Uh, Nick Castellanos is seeing that firsthand. All right. But the Phillies, uh, they got to turn it around really quick. Uh, with the way the Braves are playing, the defending World Series champion, and then, uh, of course, the way that the Mets have played, the Phillies are in some trouble here if they can't get it turned around. Uh, the Miami Marlins are fourth at 28-32. And then the Washington Nationals, they're 23-41, and 41, last in the NL East, 18 and a half games back of the Mets. Now, with the Nationals, pitcher Steven Strasburg, he was, started the season on the IR, came back to make one start, and uh, through a bullpen session before his next start, experienced some discomfort in his arm. Uh, of course, he's had Tommy John surgery, and so that they shut that down, and he is going back on the injured list. So rough, rough start to Steven Strasburg uh, season. He is, he's the guy that's always hurt. Um, he is, he seems when he's on, he's a terrific pitcher. But the problem is he's been hurt so often lately, and he's getting up there uh, in age to where he's he's not probably not going to come back to anything close to what he was. Uh, and you can reasonably expect him to be camped out on that injured list for a while. Over in the National League Central, all right, new division leader here since the last episode, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals, all right? They are 37-27. and 27. Uh, They've won three in a row. They have a two-and-a-half game lead on the Milwaukee Brewers, who are 34-29. and 29. The Brewers, their closer, Josh Hader, this guy has been lights out, automatic for the last year. Uh, he actually blew his first save of the season this past week. Gave up two runs in that blown save. It was actually the first time he had allowed a run in a regular season game since July 28th of 2021. All right, so it's been almost a full year since Josh Hader's given up a run in a regular season game. Very impressive stuff there. But the Brewers are still very much in the hunt for the division and uh, a playoff spot in general. They look uh, really good. The Pittsburgh Pirates, they... Uh, are on the worst losing streak in the MLB as it sits now. They've lost uh, nine games in a row. They're 24-37, and 37, and um, any talk of them potentially competing uh, early in the year uh, seems to have fizzled out. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are fourth at 23-37. and 37. They're 12 games back of the Cardinals. And then the Cincinnati Reds, they... Uh, are up to 22 wins already, uh, 22 and 39. They still, uh, they're they're no longer the worst team in baseball. They weren't on last episode. They're still not. Again, they've they've been turning it around a little bit. Uh, they're 22 and 39, but uh, they're going to probably be uh, fighting with the Cubs or the Pirates for last place in that division. Over in the National League West, this is the best division in baseball from top to bottom. The Los Angeles Dodgers, 
they're up top there at 37 and 23. Um, they're actually tied with the San Diego Padres, who are 38 and 24. They've played two more games than the Dodgers have, but um, win percentage-wise puts them the same. So the Dodgers and Padres are tied for that division lead. Uh, San Diego Padres, their rookie pitcher, Mackenzie Gore, he is the only Major League Baseball pitcher since 1913, going back almost 100 years, um, more than 100 years, uh, to have 55-plus strikeouts and an ERA of 1.50 or lower over his first nine career starts. So the kid's been phenomenal. He's been every bit as good as advertised, and he's a big reason as to why those Padres uh, have, have been playing well. Uh, the San Francisco Giants are third in the division at 34 and 26. Um, they just swept the LA Dodgers in the weekend series this past weekend. They've, they've won four games in a row, seven out of their last 10. They're still three games back of the Dodgers and the Padres, but, uh, the Giants are very much in the mix, uh, for a playoff spot. And then the bottom two teams, in the AL West, the Arizona Diamondbacks at 29 and 34. They're nine and a half games back. And then the Colorado Rockies are 27 and 34, sitting 10 and a half games back of those Dodgers and the Padres. But over in the American League, the American League East, all right, this is the biggest division lead in baseball. The New York Yankees are 45 and 16, all right? They have a nine game lead, all right? But with the Yankees, they were the very first team to 40 wins. Of course, the Mets, I mentioned a bit ago, uh, were the second team to 40, making both New York teams the first two to 40 wins. But uh, through 60 games this year, right, uh, they've obviously played um, 61 games based on their record at the moment. <clears throat> but through 60 games, the Yankees are on pace for 119 wins, which would be three more wins uh, than the MLB record for wins in a season, which, of course, is 116. So a big part of their success has been starting pitcher Nestor Cortez. He became the only pitcher in New York Yankees history. All right, Lots of good pitchers to come through there, but Nestor Cortez is the only pitcher in Yankees history with 65-plus strikeouts and an ERA of 1.50 or lower through his first 10 games of the season. Guy has just been lights out. And then on the offensive side of the baseball, outfielder Aaron Judge. He's the first New York Yankees player since Babe Ruth in 1928 to hit 22 home runs in his first 53 games of the year. Judge is actually on pace for 66 home runs this year, which uh, puts him in the in the vicinity to break Barry Bonds' record. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to do that, but... Um, the statistical pace that he is on puts him in the neighborhood to do that. Now, an unsung hero of the Yankees as of late has been outfielder Matt Carpenter. Uh, they signed him. The Rangers, uh, the Texas Rangers released him, and New York Yankees signed him. This dude has hit six home runs in his first 10 games with the New York Yankees. Uh, just very impressive stuff all around from the Yankees. Uh, they're just getting it done. They have a nine-game lead on the Toronto Blue Jays, who are 36-25. and 25. Now, that record, uh, Toronto's record, is a very good record. 36-25 and 25 would, uh, would actually put them uh, damn near in the division lead in the NL West and uh, the NL Central, all right? So they're, they're nine games back. That just tells you just how preposterous the, uh, the Yankees' 
have played this year. Uh, with the Blue Jays, though, uh, they've won 30 of their first 50 games for the first time since 1992. Uh, outfielder George Springer hit his 49th and 50th career leadoff home runs, moving him up to fourth all-time in MLB history. All right, he's only a couple home runs away, a couple leadoff home runs away from moving into third. Uh, potentially, he could do that this season. And then Vladimir Guerrero Jr. All right, this has to be one of the craziest stats that you'll ever hear. Of course, his dad, Vladimir Guerrero Sr., played in Major League Baseball for many, many years, uh, several teams. And this stat, all right, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., through his first 403 career Major League Baseball games, has 87 home runs and an on-base percentage of 363. Vladimir Guerrero Sr., through his first 403 career Major League Baseball games, had 87 home runs and an on-base percentage of 363. Completely identical stats to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. through their first 403 MLB games. Now, that is a large sample size. We're not talking about one season, all right? We're talking about uh, two and a half seasons, all right, of, of baseball. They have identical stats in terms of home runs and on base percentage. I mean, you can't even make that up. But uh, the Tampa Bay Rays are third in the AL East at 35 and 26. They're 10 games back of the Yankees. The Boston Red Sox are 33 and 29, 12 and a half games back. Then the Baltimore Orioles, all right, they're camped out there in last place in the AL East at 27 and 36. Uh, just probably going to stay there the rest of the year. Boston's too good to be in last place. Uh, but moving over to the American League Central, all right, the Minnesota Twins are up top there at 36 and 27. They have a three and a half game lead on the Cleveland Guardians, who are 29 and 27. Uh, they've won seven out of their last 10. The Chicago White Sox are third in the AL Central at 29 and 31. And the Detroit Tigers are 24 and 37. They're 11 games back of the Twins. They got some really bad news, the Tigers did. Uh, their ace starting pitcher, former number one overall pick in 2018, Casey Mize, he has been told he needs Tommy John surgery. Uh, so he is going to be out for. Uh, at least a year and a half, that recovery time's in the neighborhood of about 18 months. So you will not see Casey Mize again uh, this year and potentially not uh, next year at all. So a tough break there for the Tigers. Last place in the AL Central is the Kansas City Royals with a record of 20-40. and 40. They are statistically by record the very worst team in Major League Baseball. But uh, bright spot has been rookie shortstop Bobby Witt. Uh, he's had a phenomenal year. Over in the American League West, the Houston Astros, right? They went on that uh, impressive winning streak a couple weeks ago. They're 38 and 24. They have an eight and a half game lead on my Texas Rangers, all right? The Rangers are 29 and 32, okay? Um, they're still in contention for a wild card spot at the moment, the Rangers are. Uh, but uh, they've slowly crept up, all right? They, the first couple weeks of the season, they were dead last, and now they're sitting in second, uh, 61 games into their season. So if 
you'd have told me the Rangers were going to be in second place uh, a third of the way through the year or almost halfway through the year, I would have said absolutely not. But uh, here they are uh, looking pretty sharp. Uh, they've played 500 baseball as of late, dropped a couple of games. They should have won, but uh, they're still sitting in second. Los Angeles Angels, uh, they are 29-33. and 33. They are nine games back of the Astros, all right? They've only won twice in their last 10. Now, with the Angels, okay, they had a losing streak of 14 games at one point here over the past couple weeks, which caused some serious turnover with the coaching staff. We'll get into that in around the island. Uh, but um, just some horrendous baseball that was being played by the Angels. Uh, they've since won a couple games since that streak ended. Uh, first baseman Jared Walsh hit for the cycle this past weekend, so a little bit of good news there for the Angels, but they are still uh, nine games back of the Astros. Fourth place in the AL West is the Seattle Mariners. They're 27-34. and 34. Uh, They're 10 and a half games back of the Astros. They're trying to make up some ground. Big reason as to why they have been able to do that is rookie outfielder Julio Rodriguez. He is the first American League player with 50 hits and more than 15 stolen bases over his first 50 career games since Ichiro Suzuki in 2001, another former Mariners legend. So Julio Rodriguez is off to a fantastic start to his MLB career. And uh, like I said, I was all over the Mariners in the preseason uh, I'm very disappointed in what I've seen thus far, but they are trying to turn it around. Still uh, several games out of a wild card spot, so they're, they're, they're trying to get it done, but uh, Seattle's hanging out there in fourth place. Uh, the Oakland A's, they are last in the AL West at 21-42. and 42. They've only won once in their last 10 games. Uh, the A's cannot get anybody to show up at their games. They have a severe attendance problem. Nobody wants to watch uh, horrible baseball, which is what the A's have been producing. And uh, at one point last week, it may have been the week before last, there was an Oakland A's game that recorded an attendance of 5,189 people, which is just uh, absolutely abysmal. And uh, that same day that the Oakland A's of Major League Baseball had just over 5,000 people in their stands, uh, a Texas high school baseball game uh, between Sinton and Cal Allen, they had an attendance of 7,892 people. All right, so that Texas high school baseball game uh, drew about 2,700 more people than the Oakland A's game on that same day. So uh, that is wild, man. Um, but... You know, the A's, they're, they're probably going to finish in last place. They had a complete fire sale in the offseason in the beginning of the season here, trading everybody away. Um, so I would fully expect Oakland to be hanging out in last place. But like I said, those are your standings updates in Major League Baseball, about 62 to 64 games in. So a lot of baseball to be played, about 100 games left in the season. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see how those standings have changed over the last couple weeks uh, since we had an episode, but uh, lots of baseball left to be played, and uh, we'll see how those how those standings change uh, between now and uh, next week's episode.
But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And it is a loaded segment for you here this week. Lots to get into from all four of the major pro sports, even some golf news. And uh, we're going to hit some Women's College World Series softball as we have crowned a national champion there. We're going to start off in the National Football League. A few re-signings took place that were notable two of which dealt with the Los Angeles Rams. Okay, They have re-signed their two best players. That would be defensive tackle Aaron Donald and wide receiver Cooper Cup. Aaron Donald uh, was basically threatening to retire if he didn't get a new deal. So uh, Los Angeles handed out a two-year, $60 million contract. Average annual value of $30 million, which is the highest Average annual value for a non-quarterback in NFL history. That deal is just simply insane, but he's worth every penny. Complete game changer for Donald. So you at least get to see Donald for two more years in a Rams uniform. And then Cooper Cup. He was the Super Bowl MVP this past season. Put up over 1,900 yards and something like 16 touchdowns. Just a ridiculous season for Cooper Cup. He... uh, He signed a three-year, $80 million extension that now ties him to the Rams for the next five years and $110 million. He still had two years left on his deal. So basically, Cooper Cup is making $110 million over the next five seasons. Again, just wicked money. And uh, Rams locked up their two best players. And I don't know. They still don't have any draft capital. So I don't know how the hell they continue to do this hand out this kind of money, because Matthew Stafford makes $40 million a year at the quarterback position, uh, and Jalen Ramsey is a corner, makes $20 million. So you have you know, almost $100 million per season wrapped up in four guys. So I'm not quite sure how they continue to get away with that. Uh, well, they do. It's over $100 million in four guys. You know, So I don't know how they continue to do this or where they're getting this money from, but Um, it's like they're printing off Monopoly money there in Los Angeles. Um, But I guess in order to pay for gas at the moment, especially in L.A., uh, you kind of need to make that kind of money. But another re-signing that was notable, Las Vegas Raiders, they re-signed their slot receiver, uh, Hunter Renfro, two years, $32 million, with uh, 21 of that guaranteed. Uh, that's a premium for a slot receiver who's not even their number one wide receiver. That is Devontae Adams, of course, who signed that massive contract um, that you know puts him upper $20 million per season. Uh, I think it was like $28 million a year for Devontae Adams. So they have two premium high-paid wide receivers, the Raiders do. Uh, but that also means that they've locked up uh, Hunter Renfro, Derek Carr, and defensive end Max Crosby uh, this offseason, all to long-term contracts. This one, uh, this next signing is not as notable as those other few, but uh, Cleveland running back Dearness Johnson, he has agreed to a one-year $2.4 million contract extension. Uh, It's a one-year deal. Uh, Dearness Johnson really made a name for himself this year uh, when Kareem Hunt got hurt and Nick Chubb, too. Dearness Johnson could probably start on several teams, but he is their third string running back in Cleveland. So the Browns continue to boast the uh, best running back room in the league. That's three deep. 
So Dearness Johnson has one more year in Cleveland. We did have a retirement in the NFL this uh, since the last episode. That was quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, or Fitzmagic as he's called. He announced his retirement from the NFL after 17 seasons, all right? And in those 17 seasons, he played for nine teams. Uh, the St. Louis Rams, before they moved to L.A., Cincinnati Bengals, Buffalo Bills, Tennessee Titans, Houston Texans, New York Jets, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Miami Dolphins, and Washington Commanders, all right? And he started games for all nine teams, which is an NFL record among quarterbacks, all right? He's... No other quarterback has started a game for nine different teams. He, in total in his career, he started 147 games, threw for 34,990 yards, 223 touchdowns, and 169 interceptions. All right. Certainly not Hall of Fame status, but his beard is Hall of Fame status. So at least he's got that going for him. Fitzpatrick was a seventh round pick back in 2005. So a very illustrious career for a seventh-round pick. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles. I mentioned several episodes ago, they signed uh, wide receiver Devin Allen. Uh, He went to the University of Oregon, uh, was a track star more than anything. Uh, He just ran a 110-meter hurdle uh, in an Olympic trial this past weekend, and he did so in 12.84 seconds, which is the third fastest time ever recorded for a 110-meter hurdle. So, Uh, The dude is an absolute burner. Um, He's not guaranteed a roster spot on the Eagles, especially after they traded for A.J. Brown at the draft. But um, with that kind of speed, you can find a place on your team for him. So I just thought that was interesting to note there. And then the last piece of NFL news, uh, former Dallas Cowboys head coach Jason Garrett. He has been named as an analyst for NBC's Football Night in America. Now, I mentioned a couple episodes ago that Football Night in America is the most watched sports show, uh, has been for the last good part of the decade, I guess. Uh, But Drew Brees, he stepped away from the broadcast booth in NBC this past year, so that opened up a vacancy. Uh, Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth are going to call the Sunday night games with... uh, Uh, Al Michaels moving over to Amazon. So the analyst vacancy got filled by Jason Garrett. All right. So, um, you know, I didn't much care for him as the Cowboys coach, uh, but he is knowledgeable. He's so we'll we'll see how he does in the in the analyst uh, studio. But uh, that is the NFL news there over in the National Hockey League. uh, The Boston Bruins, they fired their head coach, Bruce, uh, Bruce Cassidy after their first-round exit from the playoffs this year. Uh, Cassidy had been the coach of the Bruins for the past six years. His record was 245, 108, and 49. Pretty impressive record there. He uh, had a record of 36 and 37 in the playoffs, but he did lead Boston to the 2019 Stanley Cup Finals where they lost to St. Louis. But uh, he was, the, I believe, the fourth head coach to get fired uh, since the end of the season. Now, he was also the first head coach to get hired, all right? Bruce Cassidy was not on the coaching market very long. He got hired by the Vegas Golden Knights as their new head coach. They had fired Pete DeBoer. Uh, I think we mentioned that on the last episode. But, uh, yeah, Bruce Cassidy is now the head coach. Uh, after getting fired from Boston, he is now the head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Edmonton Oilers backup goalie Miko Koskinen 
Uh, he played quite a bit in the playoffs. Uh, Mike Smith had gotten pulled a couple of times, and Koskinen came in, filled in. Uh, well, he's leaving the NHL. He's signing a two-year deal with uh, Hockey Club Lugano, which plays in the top league in Switzerland. All right, so he's leaving the NHL to go play in Europe, uh, European Pro League. Uh, just thought that was interesting to note. Uh, over in Major League Baseball, we had a couple of managers get fired uh, since the last episode. The first casualty was Philadelphia Phillies manager Joe Girardi. All right, this move was made uh, after Philly had started the year at 22 and 29 and had lost seven of their previous nine games before the firing. All right, uh, Girardi had spent the last three years as the Phillies manager. He went 132 and 141, did not have a playoff appearance, and uh, things just got stale. Uh, I mentioned they're third in the NL East right now, nine and a half games back, but uh, after the firing, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies won their first eight games under interim manager Rob Thompson. All right, he's a, uh, an assistant coach on the team. He was named interim manager for the rest of the year. And the first eight games under Thompson, they won all eight. All right, so uh, I guess you could say that move certainly paid off, at least in the short term, but we'll see. Uh, the other manager to get fired was Los Angeles Angels manager Joe Madden. I mentioned they had a 14-game losing streak. Joe Madden got fired um, towards the tail end of this thing. Um, I want to say they were uh, about 9 or 10 games in, maybe 11 games into this losing streak when Madden got fired. Um, but they started the season um, 10 games over 500 uh, before they lost all these games. All right. And uh, bench coach Phil Nevin was named their interim manager. Um, and the Angels still continued to lose under Phil Nevin before finally winning a couple. But um, Joe Madden was also in his third year as the Angels manager, and he had not made a playoff appearance yet either. So um, just because of the division that they play in, I like the Angels' chances to make the playoffs better than the Phillies, but I do not believe at this particular moment, that either team will be in the playoffs. A team that will be is the Houston Astros. All right, They re-signed their designated hitter, Jordan Alvarez, to a six-year, $115 million contract extension. That's just baseball money right there. Uh, this was actually the largest contract ever given to a primary designated hitter. All right, So Alvarez does not play uh, in the field really at all. He is strictly a designated hitter. And he is the richest designated hitter in Major League Baseball history. Now, I found this graphic on the MLB on Fox social media page. Um, it's the top 10 most favorited MLB teams on the Fox Sports app. Uh, no, no particular reason for this stat other than I just thought it was interesting. Uh, I'll go backwards uh, from 10 down to 1. So the, again, these are your top 10 most favorited teams uh, on the Fox Sports app for the MLB. Number 10 is my Texas Rangers. I don't know how the hell they're one of the top 10 most favorited teams, but I'll take it. Uh, number nine, the Detroit Tigers. Again, don't know how the hell they're up there, but they are. Number eight is the Milwaukee Brewers. Number seven is the Chicago Cubs. Number six, the St. Louis Cardinals. Number five, the Boston Red Sox. 
Number four, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Number three, the Houston Astros. Number two, the Atlanta Braves. And number one, the New York Yankees. Uh, I probably would have guessed at least five or six of those teams. Um, Certainly wouldn't have guessed Detroit or Texas, but um, just thought that was interesting. And then another random stat I came across. I mean, I got random stats for days, people. Just bear with me. Uh, The Los Angeles Dodgers, all right, they opened the season this year with a payroll of $310.6 million, which is uh, the highest in Major League Baseball history to start the year, all right? But due to that, they are also paying an MLB record luxury tax of $47 million, okay? Um, The rich get richer, basically, but you got to pay to be rich, I guess, in sports, if that makes any sense. So their starting payroll of $310.6 million was a record, and so too is their luxury tax bill of $47 million. Now, five teams exceeded the $230 million payroll threshold as of opening day, which was one shy of the most ever in a single season, which was back in 2016. There were six teams that had over a $230 million payroll that year. So uh, Dodgers just doing Dodger things, uh, and it still probably won't be enough to get them another World Series, but at least they won one a couple years ago. Over in the NBA, one piece of news, the Charlotte Hornets, they have found their new head coach. They have hired Golden State Warriors assistant coach Kenny Atkinson to be their new head coach. Uh, He does have some head coaching experience with the Brooklyn Nets uh, several years ago. He coached for three years. He went 118 and 190, so well below 500. Uh, But overall, Atkinson has spent... Nine years as as, uh, as an assistant coach with the Atlanta Hawks, New York Knicks, uh, Los Angeles Clippers, and currently the Golden State Warriors. And he is the second Golden State Warriors assistant coach to be hired to a head coaching position this season, joining Mike Brown, who got hired to be the head coach of the Sacramento Kings. Now, both Mike Brown and uh, Kenny Atkinson are going to finish their year's uh, finished the year as the head coach or uh, as the assistant coach of Golden State before jumping to their new teams. Uh, over in the PGA Tour, this really doesn't have much to do with the PGA Tour. It actually has more to do with the LIV Golf uh, League, which has been formed. It's a Saudi Arabian-based league uh, that has a ridiculous payout uh, for their golfers, and it has swiped a total of uh, 19 PGA Tour golfers. Um, the uh, PGA has suspended 17 players from the PGA Tour for participating in these LIV golf events. Uh, some notable names. A few of these guys have actually resigned from the PGA Tour, and that includes Dustin Johnson. He's your most notable name. Uh, some other players to be suspended. Sergio Garcia, Brendan Grace, Phil Mickelson, Kevin Na, Louis Oosthuizen, Ian Poulter, Charles Schwartzel, Hudson Swafford, and Lee Westwood. Now there's talk that Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Reed, they've also come out and said that they're going to be playing in some LIV golf events, but they have neither one of them have officially resigned from the PGA Tour. Uh, so very interesting news there. That, that seems to be 
uh, a hot topic in the golf world. Now, interestingly enough, Rory McIlroy, he, of course, just won this past week at the RBC Canadian Open. He's been very vocal about staying with the PGA Tour and not jumping over to the LIV Golf League. And uh, he goes out and wins this weekend, and he had quite a bit to say to uh, Commissioner Monaghan on the PGA Tour um, about this LIV golf thing. So there's quite a bit of drama. If you want to read kind of the full full story, I suggest you Google it, but lots to talk about there. Uh, but we are moving over to a first um, on this show, and that is some college softball. All right, the Women's College World Series. Uh, they had their final four last weekend. The final four for the Women's College World Series was Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, UCLA, and Texas. All right, my Texas Longhorns made the Women's College World Series. Now, Oklahoma, uh, they were the top overall seed. They beat UCLA to advance to the national championship game. Texas, uh, my beloved Longhorns, they beat Oklahoma State to advance to the College World Series final. Now, interesting about Texas, they were actually down five to nothing in the winner take all game against Oklahoma State. They came back and rallied to win six to five to advance to the uh, Women's College World Series final, which was a Red River Showdown National Championship series between the Oklahoma Sooners and the Texas Longhorns. Uh, this was Texas's first ever appearance in the Women's College World Series, and they became the first ever unseeded team to reach the Women's College World Series. So a little bit of history there for Texas. Oklahoma, uh, they had been here quite a bit over the last uh, couple decades, including uh, winning the national title just last season. So they were seeking back-to-back national titles. Game one uh, was just absolutely horrendous for the Longhorns. Um, It was just, um, how do I put this? It was a hellacious beatdown by the Sooners. Uh, Oklahoma won the game 16-1, to all right? Oklahoma, they scored 16 runs, which tied the most runs scored in any Women's College World Series game all time. And they also set the following records with that win. Uh, They scored the most runs in a single Women's College World Series with 54, most home runs in a Women's College World Series game with six, most total bases in a Women's College World Series game with 38. So those were all the records that were set just in that one game. And in addition to tying the most runs scored in a single game, they also tied the largest margin of victory by any team in a Women's College World Series game with a plus 15 run differential uh, by winning 16-1. to Again, just an absolutely hellacious beatdown. It was painful to see. Uh, Game two, uh, it started out, uh, looked like Texas was in it to win it for a little while. Uh, And then Oklahoma turned on the Jets, and they ended up winning the game 10-5 to capture their sixth national championship in program history which uh, was also their second straight back-to-back national championships for the Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, It was their fifth championship uh, in the last nine Women's College World Series that they've played in. So they've been winning uh, more than they've been losing. 
once they've gotten there. A big reason why they did that was uh, Jocelyn Allo. She was the most outstanding player of the Women's College World Series, and uh, rightfully so. She hit over 500, uh, just kept clubbing home runs like it was batting practice. And uh, interesting fact about Oklahoma, they actually finished the year with more home runs as a team than they did have strikeouts. So any team uh, that finishes with more home runs than strikeouts uh, certainly makes a, a good case to be a national champion, and that is uh, exactly what happened. I'm not going to congratulate them because I am a Longhorn fan, so uh, we will move on to our final topic. That's just a random stat. Uh, this past week, Forbes uh, has estimated that two current athletes are now uh, have a net worth of over $1 billion. That's LeBron James. Uh, he was the first to be named a billionaire, and the other is Tiger Woods. All right, Both of those guys have a net worth of over $1 billion. The only other athlete in the history of pro sports to have an estimated net worth of over $1 billion uh, was Michael Jordan. All right, so uh, pretty cool to see two of those three billionaire athletes still uh, currently playing. But that is going to wrap up the 79th episode of the Sports Island podcast. And uh, we got lots of stuff going on this weekend. Uh, the Stanley Cup final is getting underway this week, so we got some Stanley Cup final hockey. The NBA finals are winding down. Uh, we will have crowned an NBA champion by the time uh, we have next week's episode, so there'll be some NBA Finals basketball on this weekend. Um, of course, some regular season Major League Baseball to be played. And then uh, the best part of Father's Day weekend is the U.S. Open, all right, major championship in golf. So I will be tuned in to pretty much all of those four events. And uh, happy Father's Day to all my fellow dads out there. It's, uh, it's your weekend. Go live it up. Go play some golf. Watch uh, watch whatever you want to watch. Plenty of stuff to get into on the sports uh, scene. So we will have a, a pretty good episode next week as we uh, discuss how the NBA Finals concluded and uh, how the U.S. Open turned out, along with where we're at in the Stanley Cup Finals. So we will uh, get you caught up on all that next week. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.